Rich, today we're sitting down with Dr. Kim and Todd Saxton from the University of Indiana, both business professors at the university. They're also co-authors of a book called The Titanic Effect, and they're also fellow triathletes of yours. When you think of Titanic Effect, of course, you can't help but think of icebergs. And they have 32 icebergs that are things to look out for as an entrepreneur that they've experienced or they've seen other entrepreneurs experience across the over two dozen entrepreneurs they've worked with. Yeah, and we also break down, Rich, those 32 icebergs into four distinct oceans that we actually talk about, general categories that entrepreneurs need to be thinking about. And what I love the most about this conversation is they've been involved in more than a couple dozen startups and businesses. They've seen the successes, they've seen the failures, and they talk practically about exactly what entrepreneurs need to be thinking about in order to actually foster their own business and, and achieve the success they're looking for. So here's Dr. Todd and Kim Saxton. Today's episode is being brought to you by Financial Wing. Are your company's financials keeping you up at night? We all know that today's small to medium-sized businesses often overlook the fundamentals of accounting and financial operations. Our friends at Financial Wing can help with everything from bookkeeping, monthly closing and reporting, budget planning, and much, much more. Financial Wing's reliable and professional approach will quickly build your trust and turn your finances into an asset versus a liability. Go to financialwing.com eu for your free 30-minute consultation and see what they can do for you. Kim, Todd, welcome to the Entrepreneurs United podcast. Thanks for having us. We're really excited to be here today. Absolutely. As we were discussing, excited to have both of you guys with us and would love to understand. Here we have a lot in common, so we will jump into all that kind of stuff. But uh, you guys have a book called The Titanic Effect. You're professors as well, I believe, both of you. Can you guys give, me a, give us a little bit of taste of who you guys are exactly and what you guys are doing to help entrepreneurs and their businesses? Sure. Go ahead. We are married, first of all. And actually, we've been married for 35 years. We met at our first jobs outside of college in consulting in the Washington, D.C. area. I had come down from Boston. He came up from Charlottesville, Virginia. And so we met at this company. And um, we have been in consulting. We moved into teaching. I took a maybe five-year stint uh, outside of teaching uh, to work in big pharma and then with a startup pharmaceutical um, we've been in the Indianapolis area for about uh, 25 years. Yeah. I am a marketing professor. He's a professor of strategy and entrepreneurship. And in being in Indianapolis, we just got started talking to a lot of startups who want to see, run their ideas past professors and things like that. And we've been advisors to startups. We are angel investors. We actually have helped found a couple of companies as well. And then we are trained in the i methodology to help innovators identify what the unique value of their uh, innovation is and to whom, and just spend a lot of time talking to startups. And our book is really about the biggest mistakes that we found startups made over a 20-year period. So we call them icebergs. And so the idea is if you knew the iceberg was there, maybe it would cause less damage when you hit it, or maybe you only get a glancing blow, or maybe you can steer around it because you know it's coming. Between the two of you, how many startups have you been involved with? Not from a consulting perspective, but like you had skin in the game in that startup. How many between the two of you? So our first one came when we left our jobs and moved into the PhD program at Indiana University, coming back to academia. And 
the year that we left consulting to do that, we made 10% of what we made the year before, and we had a nine-month-old. So we started our consulting firm, uh, which was a services firm, low risk. This is not a high tech. We weren't raising money or building a team or any of that. But that was our first worry, although I, I should go back to like my high school years where I conned my mom into buying the lawnmower and I would mow our lawn for free as long as I could then use it to mow other people's lawns for money. And I had the newspaper route and I grew up in New Jersey. So I did all of that kind of stuff going in the Wayback Machine. Since then, we started, we were co-founders of a health IT firm more recently. That was probably about 10 years ago. And what's interesting, if you look at our portfolio, if you will, we have those where we're shoulder to shoulder with the entrepreneur, I have a small piece, two to 5%. We probably had a half a dozen of those, but then we have another 15 to 20 where as angel investors, we have skin in the game in the form of dollars, but we're not as involved in any of the day-to-day -day kind of strategy or marketing. Although obviously we're always happy to be a resource to entrepreneurs, whether we've invested in them or not. So that was a hard, a rough number, right? So <laughs> I would say it's, Around two dozen firms that we have played a hands-on role, either in helping define the product, helping start marketing, helping bring in advisors, helping bring in someone to run it, all kinds of things like that. Very rarely are we paid as consultants, to be frank. Okay. And the book on the Titanic effect, you had mentioned there are 25 icebergs. Which iceberg would you say is the most deadly? Yeah. So there's actually 32, and that came from probably talking to over 500 startups. I mean, we've had a we've had a few years of this two coffee rule. You know, you can invite us to for coffee or lunch twice, and then we either need to do something that it rolls. We're public servants, right? We're we're university professors, and we firmly believe in the role in the university of reaching out and helping the community. So not just our students and alums, but uh, anybody. And as Kim said. We'll meet you twice, even if we think you're an idiot and completely not coachable and your baby's ugly and you don't know it yet. But we will tell you your baby's ugly. <laughs> so yeah. it, was, it was from these conversations where we're like, oh, here we are again. We've heard this before. So I think for me, the biggest mistake that I always I see and we try to really counsel people is the, oh, what we're doing is so new. Nobody has ever seen it before. And also, everybody needs it. It's so unique and so amazing, right? And so that's impossible for a startup. First of all, being that disruptive, trying to create a new category when you have no resources is just a really bad idea. So what you want to do is you want to be something that's really better than something that people already understand. And then everyone you can't possibly serve everyone. So you've got to figure out who is the ideal segment and start small and expand over time. And that's just really hard, we find, for entrepreneurs. So just to validate, you find a big iceberg that's one of the most deadly is that an entrepreneur believes that they have something brand new, nobody else has it, and everybody needs it, and they're creating a new category, if you will, that they would need to educate the world on what it even is. In your experience with having worked hands-on with over two dozen firms, you would advise that person to say, 
if that's actually the case, if that's a new category and you're starting off that way, you probably want to dial back and look for a way to just make something that is current better. People already know what it is. There's an existing need for it. You can just reinvent that mousetrap better than what currently exists. And that would be what your advice would be. Yeah, there are the occasional out of the blue disruptors, right? An Uber, an open AI. Just look at the dollars that those two businesses consumed in being launched and getting started. Yes, they've dramatically changed the world, but for most entrepreneurs, they probably are not in that situation. They need to find something that'll just be a lot easier and cheaper to get started with. I'm sure you both heard the the term blue ocean. We have a blue ocean strategy. We're out there. Yes. When you're a solo entrepreneur, especially, but even a team, and you're out in the middle of the blue ocean and there's nobody around, (laughs) it's really hard to make a sound that anybody can hear. And by the way, there are sharks out there. So this idea of we're the only ones who do it and we can serve everybody as Kim and then you, you nicely summed up. But just focus, right? And that, that I think is one of the biggest challenges some entrepreneurs face. Todd, I don't know in the four seasons of the Entrepreneurs United podcast if we've actually discussed the Blue Ocean strategy, actually. And I heard it as well recently. I've read the book before, but it's never really come up in this conversation with Rich and I and guests. Can you give for our audience a real quick synopsis of what the Blue Ocean strategy is? I do have a little bit of a challenge there within what you just said uh, that I'd like to banter back and forth with you on. Yeah, absolutely. So the the basic sense of the blue ocean is you want to avoid an ocean or an area of activity, a market where there's already a lot of activity. So the red ocean where there are sharks and you're trying to deal with established competitors and a blue ocean is finding that kind of white space in the market where other people are not. And that's the the basic thesis of it. And I, I think like the lean startup strategy, it's not that's a, per se a bad idea. And and a lean startup is a very powerful methodology and, and way of using experimentation to approach innovation of any type, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs. But there are dangers associated with it. And part of the underlying logic and, and thesis behind our book and the idea of the Titanic effect is there are a lot of like how-tos, here are the things to do, use the lean startups, look for blue ocean. There aren't that many. And, and actually, I think part of what you, John, were, were doing with your book was to say, yeah, but there are also like mistakes people make. So yeah. how can we identify those in advance and say, okay, there are a lot of to-dos, but not many don't do this. So for example, don't sit around the table with three of you and say, hey, we're going to start a company. Let's each take a third of it, right? That we call that the inequitable equity debt or, or iceberg, that people prematurely allocate equity before they have any idea of what the heck any of them are actually going to contribute and who's going to spend time on it, who they need to bring in to, to bolster the team. So that that's one of the, the other bergs, Rich, when you had asked about some of the most dangerous ones, particularly early on, there are some that are related to the team, how you build the team, how you allocate equity, and who are the investors, uh, what's your investing strategy uh, going in. Uh, We call those, we call that category the human ocean. So we've divided the different areas, extending that uh, metaphor of the Titanic. We have these different oceans of debt bergs, 
the marketing being one, the technical side, how you build product, the human side, and then the strategy piece, which is how you connect the dots between all of those. Okay, Todd, let me, I got a few things here I want to touch on. So I got human ocean, tech ocean, strategy ocean. What did I miss? Marketing. Marketing ocean. Okay. So I guess to, to put it differently, there are icebergs in these four oceans, but that's how you break it up metaphorically. So that, that makes a lot of sense. So if the inequity iceberg is a human ocean and the business is so unique and new, no one else needs, everybody needs it. That first iceberg that Kim brought up, I'm assuming that's a strategy ocean. Uh, that's a marketing ocean. Marketing ocean. Okay. Got it. So can you give me an example of the biggest tech iceberg and the biggest strategy iceberg? So at least we can get the biggest one in each ocean. There yeah. you go. So one that we see frequently, particularly with technical entrepreneurs, and we do a lot in the healthcare arena, including with physicians and the overdue and overspend, they build, invest way more in the product before actually getting out and talking to customers. And that's part of the i methodology. That's part of the kind of get out of the building go out and actually figure out what problem you're helping solve, what job you're doing for your customers before you overinvest in building. And we've seen everything from the $50,000 pre-app to the two to $300,000 fully functional web app, multiple platforms. And then you find out that no one would actually use it in the way that you've envisioned and, and how you've built it. So I would say that's one of the biggest in the, the technical ocean. Okay, got it. The strategy ocean. Yeah, and, and the strategy is really, again, the linkages between, I, I would like to call out two there. One is that integration of activity across oceans. And we, we tend to see entrepreneurs in two different camps, kind of the sales and marketing oriented that are outselling something way ahead of understanding whether they can build it or not, or how much it's going to cost them to build. But those are the people out of sales and marketing, the extroverted and they're out in the market, not just learning and identifying a problem, but actually selling something way before integrating with the, the technical side and whether they can build it. And then we already talked about the overdue and overspend, the technical founders who really focus a lot on product and functionality before engaging with the marketplace. The, the other, which I, I know you have varied audience, and I think from a strategy perspective, it's really important to start with what are we trying to build and don't fall into that trap that like the only worthwhile entrepreneur is the one who's shooting for venture capital and raising a million plus dollars. And, you know, that now if that's your dream and that's your direction, that's awesome. And that is appropriate for a small subset of startups. But if you can bootstrap something, particularly if it's more service related or one of your guests converted a service and productized it, when that kind of evolution that you can fund more incrementally um, can be extremely worthwhile, can be a, and is a very important part of our economy. And I, again, to the listeners, I would just avoid falling into that trap that you're only a successful entrepreneur if you're out getting uh, raising a bunch of money. Yeah, let's touch on that. As you mentioned, the book I have coming out, The $100 Million Journey, is your guide to growing the business of your dreams without going off the cliff. Yeah. And one of the ways that I've learned myself is when you get caught up in the glamorization of being an entrepreneur, and all you're talking about is how much capital you've raised, and how fast you've grew your company, and all those different kinds of things, you really get caught. Because the reality is you may grow a business to be very large, but you may not own it or manage it or control it or anything, and you could lose it all like that. Uh, and and, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs are just glamorized by it. 
And if your $100 million business doesn't grow to be a billion dollar business, your investors view it as we want our 10x returns. And that yeah. means you got to push, push, which might not be the right strategy for your firm. Yeah, I think it's uh, you know good to grade that talks about like just that 20, whatever, 20 mile march or 100 mile march, whatever it is, right? Just take your time, grow it maintain the equity in your business, build your own cash flow, only take the next step first, but it's hard. And I guess you guys have seen so many entrepreneurs, so many startup entrepreneurs that have these big eyes, right? They have this vision of what they want to build. How do you tame that down, but still keep the excitement and energy with the entrepreneurs you guys work with? So I, I did want to come back to your 100 mile march. And I, I know you guys are both triathletes, as are we. And well, sorry, just for the record, I'm the only person on this that is not a triathlete. Oh, apologies. Um, Rich has accomplished the feat, but not myself. Okay. It's we every decade when we turn 40, 50, and now 60, we try and take up a new thing. Like we started mountain biking when we turned 40 and, and snowboarding. And then so when we turned 50, we did our, our first Ironman together, completed our first oh. Ironman together. So it sounds like John's ready to make a big commitment. Do you have any <laughs> questions, John, before you make a commitment here? <laughs> not yet. But, I'm still listening. <laughs> so, so we, we talk about, and we've heard this, I'm sure you guys have heard this, maybe in used it. It's not a sprint, but it's a marathon. It's not a marathon. It's a multi-sport endurance event. There are lots of different things as an entrepreneur that you need to either be able to understand yourself or be able to build a team to manage. So I think from that perspective of the, the long journey, being patient, but also being self-aware, knowing yeah, I'm, I'm a great swimmer, but I suck on the, the bike. So you need to focus on that leg of the journey and either get extra training or building. I took a diversion and John, I apologize. I lost the thread of where that initial question came back from. No, I was just saying this. that you hit it a little bit. I love that quote. It's not a sprint and it's not a marathon. It's a multi-sport endurance event. That's what entrepreneurship is. But what I was asking is you've worked with a couple dozen startups and Part of the reason I think I failed and, and one of my big failures, I just had this big vision of growing something so big. And, and, but I just didn't really, if I had known at the start that maybe that's not the right way to go about it, maybe a slower, steadier approach, but entrepreneurs are so excited. They, they see the shiny objects. They want to go. They want to diversify. They want to over-productize. They want to get everything going. How do you guys, when you work with the entrepreneurs you work with, get them to, to slow down a little bit and actually see that actually a steadier, slower approach is the better approach when they're so excited about their vision? So I would say that what we often see is more, I don't know if I, they shoot for the fences, like you're saying. It, it, what I see is a lot of pinballing. Like I really want to build a hundred million dollar business. So let me try this. Oh wait, no, that's not working. Let me try this. Okay. That's not working. Let me try this. That, pivot. Pivot. that process of finding product market fit is really hard. And so what we do is talk about how to have experiments to find that product market fit. But once you find that product market fit, pour on the gas. Like at that moment is when you're like, how can I get money? Can I, what does my mom have? What does my dad have? What bank can I find? So we do a little coaching and in, in that is, is how to get to product market fit. How do you know you have it? And then once you have it, we are like, yeah, pull out all stops, figure out how to get there as fast as possible. If you've done those experiments right from a, like a marketing perspective, you should have an idea of a beachhead segment that you're really going after. And then you should have some experiments you've done to know what the order of who's next. 
So let, let's say for, I'll just take something random. Like I was working with somebody about uh, masks and firefighters look to be like the best place for masks. Turns out there's 7,500 federal firefighters because they do wildfires, right? If that was just your first segment, then you can start to think about other groups of firefighters, right? Some who are longer, some are shorter and optimize what is a rollout plan. So that's a lot of what we talk about is where's your beachhead where this product is so perfect, they would be stupid not to use it. And that could be a small niche. All right. And then where are the ones we can add on to who maybe are going to need some more features, maybe a little more selling, something slightly different price point and start to think about how to roll it out over time. Then if it's really working and you've got the money, well, you can roll out to multiple segments after you've got that first beachhead, but make sure you've got a really good beachhead where you're making money. You might even be cash flow positive, right? So now you can feed the business on the money that you're making. The so-called Pegasus mm-hmm. fly under their own wings. I'm all in on that concept. I think also an, another dimension to this, we, we ask a lot of, question of uh, questions about motivation. And if it's, I'm tired of working for the man. I want to go run my own show. We hope to disabuse them of that notion that as an entrepreneur, you call all the shots, right? Because all of a sudden, instead of answering to one or two bosses, you've got 15, including your partner, because you're up late at night and not around, potentially investors. The most painful, at least as painful as having to say, yeah, I need to pivot or our venture isn't working is that first time that a startup gets to the point where they have to do a layoff because of cash flow reasons. And a lot of even very successful startups hit that point. But man, that is gut-wrenching for the entrepreneur. And that's a really tough decision. And so as you are are building this asset, there also it's going to be a little bit of a roller coaster and you're going to have some some times where the motivation you're wondering where it went. So again, thinking you're not going to, you're going to not work for anybody anymore. Uh, you're going to be the boss calling all the shots. And then the other is I'm going to start something so I can be a millionaire and make a bunch of money. There are lots of other better ways <laughs> to make a bunch of money that won't be as, as hard or as challenging. So uh, like I say, and John, I think this may get a little to your original question. We ask a lot of questions about why people are doing this, what they're going to get. And if it's to spend more time at home, to have more freedom in what I do, we will remind them of that constantly until they're sick of hearing it or until they're so far beyond uh, being coachable that that we're not we're way beyond that too coffee and, and we're not going to work with them anymore. But that's an important piece, I think, to narrowing that focus a little bit, disabusing them of, of some of the notions of the glamour and glitz of being an entrepreneur. Uh, to have a more realistic sense of what that journey might look like. What did you find with your experience in academia as it relates to business? What did you find was not applicable in, quote, the real world, where you're maybe a little bit surprised that there was something that was technically taught? However, that's not really how it works. (laughs) So we're a little different from some academics in that we are pretty connected in the community and do work really closely with practitioners. And so we sometimes get accused of being what's called phenomenological because we see something that's happening in real world and we try to explore what that is. 
Whereas many academics start with a theory and then see how the theory plays out. We are not as strong as that. So many of the things that we do and a lot of what we teach is what we have seen actually works. But probably the funniest thing I get, so I teach what the marketing process is supposed to be like. We start with your segments and you understand the market, you look at competitors and you craft a positioning statement and then you go and you do your four piece. I teach this. And I literally have had numerous alumni come back to me and say, I have never done it that way. (laughs) But maybe you should. This is one of those where it's not what people do, but it's what people should do. And so then I try to find examples when people did that. And usually what happens is they do, they jump right into creating an ad or something. And then they're like, oh, that didn't work. There was no strategy behind it. And so that's one one place where I have seen the reverse. that they're not doing what we told them to do. And if they did, it would be better. And I think probably some of that comes from our consulting background prior to being entering PhD problems that we, or programs that we came in interested in the problems that businesses face. And we did that for six years. So that kind of became a, at least a small part of our DNA. But I would say, I feel like the... Each piece of what we do, the engagement with the community, what we do on a teaching front and what we do on a research front are mutually reinforcing. Initially, I taught the startup class and students would come up with their own ideas and then do their business plan at the end of the semester. And this is going back 24, 25 years. And then we've had the aha moment that we're actually, a lot of the programs we teach in are in Indianapolis or with the business community, people who are working full-time, uh, getting their degree at night. Um, we're like right here in the middle, like let's get these students out into that population and have them interact a little bit so they're getting out of the building. Um, and as part of doing that, I became a board member for the Venture Club of Indiana, which is a group that brings together investors and, and entrepreneurs and it was, huh, I should probably be not only getting the students out here, but there's some things I need to be doing differently as I teach entrepreneurship. And by the way, uh, and, and this is a big thread of our research, so I'm going to take a little bit of a, a, a side journey here, but I, but I think you guys would find it interesting. There was very little research at the time on how entrepreneurs navigate that uncertainty and do things other than raise money. And yet, in our experience, how an entrepreneur engages with a community and vice versa, we call it venture advocate behaviors, things that people do to help the early stage entrepreneur think more uh, carefully and strategically about where they're headed, helping them make the connections to the right customers, uh, ask the right questions, as well as where to get those answers. So we have a series of probably four or five articles now around this topic of venture advocate behaviors, who engages in them, Uh, What are some of the things you can do to try and draw out those supporting behaviors that then lead to those other things like raising money and hopefully success? Not always, uh, but they're instrumental to that. So it's as as much a social process as it is an economic one. And and, and that was learned through our interactions with that community. So I I think... We wrote the first academic article that even discussed it. So... That was a big surprise. But back to the question he you started with, which is, I think you eliminated the business plan. Mm-hmm. You know, it, what used to be that you would teach people, oh, let's put together this 20-page business plan. Oh, in order 20 to, or 50, 60. To, to start our business. And you realize, oh, yeah, throw that out. 
Instead, what do you have them do? Yeah. And that's where some of that lean startup mentality and starting with kind of the mind mapping leading to some form of a business model canvas, but then really building out deep the business unit economics, the sales and marketing strategy, beachheads, and the team. So we we still drill deeply into some of the core parts of the business, but the idea isn't to have a fully indexed 60-page plan at the end of the term, but to have a really good understanding of what are the next questions to ask, what are the next inflection points, and how do you use that mindset of developing hypotheses, testing them, because in the long run, that's what's going to be important for them as future entrepreneurs, not whether they dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's between page two and page 28 and, and the financial statements. Thanks for that. Which one of the icebergs has come up for you guys very personally that had to keep reappearing? That you somehow the world kept having to teach you the same lesson and then you finally got it. That was an iceberg. Which one of them does that resonate with? I think, and in, in, so some of the companies that we've either invested in or helped start the false hope, Detberg, of really believing that the marketing and the product will get you through and not focusing enough on sales, the sales process, having a competent salesperson. And I, I, you just can't get traction without somebody who can not only sell the first and sell the fifth, but also build a scalable uh, selling machine. And in our two biggest uh, failures, I would say that lack of attention to the, the sales building process, which I think comes closely to that kind of false hope that if you have good marketing behind it and you've identified a real need, that, that the rest will come along. I don't know. Your thoughts there? Yeah, mine's in the human ocean. It's about the team and the investors. Just We've seen too many times not having the right investors who can play the right role to help the startup. So you take money from somebody and then there's strings attached or they're not as helpful as they should be, or they're not keeping track of things and things go down. It sounds from a lot of the bergs that you're referring to, I in the learnings that I had seven principles that I developed and you guys almost connect with almost every single one of them in this conversation, right? Like principle one is how to protect and grow your own equity. So you don't have the inequity berg, right? Mm -hmm. Number two is build your own capital. Don't go hat in hand to financiers, investors, build your own, build a product or service. You can actually sell to generate your own capital. So you don't have to give up number one, which is your equity, right? right? Three is reinvest smartly. Don't go chasing stuff all over the place. Figure out what your product mix is, how it works, and then scale that. Do you best at that particular thing before you run all over the place, right? Four is build your culture of entrepreneurship with your team and build your own team. So you, they're really high powered and ready to go. And it could go on and on, but there's a lot of connections there between our, our pieces that I really love. And I think the idea that just because you want to be an entrepreneur, what are you trying to achieve? You mentioned that Todd earlier, like, why did you become an entrepreneur in the first place? What, what is your goal? And I think when I had my failure, I lost connection to that. I lost connection to like why I was an entrepreneur. I just wanted to grow something big. That's not ultimately if I, when I sat down, it's like, because I want to create wealth and freedom. I want to do all these different things, but the business I was running was actually taking me in a complete opposite direction of what I really wanted to your point. And 
You, the, one of the best quotes I love is, so you want to be an entrepreneur, guess what? You're working for a lunatic, <laughs> right? It's you and, and everybody else. And it's a tough, really thing. But I wanted to come back to one piece I mentioned earlier that I, I failed to come back on. As I said, I'm going to challenge you on this blue ocean thing. Yeah. And what I, what I really meant by that is on one side, you've got these red oceans. It's commoditized, right? It's really difficult to get in there. It's hard to make margin. It's hard. It's a really tough industry. The airline industry is an example, or maybe the beverage product industry. It's very commoditized, tough. Then you got this blue ocean over here, which is go start your own blue ocean. And that's the Uber example you gave Kim, like just go start a whole new disruptive industry to everything. But there are ways for companies to take their business that could be in a murky ocean. And at that particular point, decide, are you going to take your business closer to the red? Or are you going to try and create a blue ocean within your current business by diversifying your offering and making it something different than what everybody else does? And that's the way that I talk to, to entrepreneurs is go find the blue ocean within your space. Don't go create right. the blue ocean. Go find the more blue ocean within your space. And that's, the, I guess, the point I just wanted to get your thoughts on. Yeah, no, that's exactly what we were trying to say. We just didn't say it very well, which is my one of my favorite examples is FedEx. Think about when FedEx started. Overnight delivery was crazy. And no one even can imagine what it was. So what they said was, we're like the mail, only you get it overnight. So be in a market that's well known, but really you have to differentiate yourself. Nobody's going to make change their behavior for some unless something has really got value add to it. And so differentiating it by delivering more. Some people would argue you have to deliver 10 times more. I don't know if it's 10 times more. You've got to deliver more. You've got to figure out what that more is, or you've got to price appropriately. And also, if you do deliver more, then you can charge more. And so one of the things I struggle with the Blue Ocean is differentiate and be low cost. I think you should differentiate and extract value. Love it. Thank you. Thank you for that. But strikes me, and I'm sure it strikes Rich as we're having this conversation. We're speaking with a couple that's been married for 35 years that are both professors at the same university have written a book together, have been in business together, have done a triathlon and an Ironman together. What's the secret to having that fulfillment of being together and doing all these things together without it tearing you apart or challenging you guys? Like, What's the secret there in your success uh, together as a couple? I'm going to let him answer, but I will say that not every day is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, well, there's got to be secrets there. Only 99% of them, honey, of course. <laughs> That's the secret. <laughs> we do, we laugh together a lot, right? And we're, we do point out each other. But like our lifestyle and all of the interconnectedness would not work for a lot of people. So like to try and say, this is the recipe, do everything together. No, for a lot of couples, that would really suck and the expectations and everything. So it's evolved to work well that way. But when we worked together initially and met, we did not get along at all. <laughs> so we, we, it was hard. We couldn't work on projects together and things. So we were at the same consulting firm. But I would say over time, we have been patient and tolerant with each other and built well, this kind of repertoire of activities that we share. I think our strengths work together. So for example, we were uh, over this Thanksgiving timeframe. So to date this podcast, we've been exploring a new area. And so I really do not like uncertainty. I, I don't mind taking some risks, but I don't like when I just don't know that I'm very information hungry. 
And so he's driving around. I don't like to drive either. So I will. So he's driving around and I'm on my phone and I'm like, oh, this fact and that fact. And oh, if we go over here and oh, if, you know, turn around and we don't mind turning around. That's one thing I think is a challenge for some couples. I'm like, oh, shoot. That is not the way I want to go. Let's go back this other way. I want to see this other thing. And then you see this thing. You're like, oh, that was so cool. And look at this picture we just got. And so I think we divide and conquer and work from our strengths. He's very visionary. He has a lot of grand ideas. I'm very practical. And I really like to be productive. Love it. So I, I guess the big question I have is we, we've covered a lot. We've covered a lot of oceans. We've covered a lot of bergs. We've covered a good amount of stuff. If you had one message and only one message alone, each of you can have a separate message. So there's two messages. It can't be the same one that you want to send entrepreneurs to help them achieve their vision of business success and entrepreneurial success. What would it be? I'll start, which is take that step, right? There, there are so many. And we talked about those entrepreneurs that are so driven by what they want to create and what they want to build and, and how do you tamp the the expectations a little and i would say we spend at least as much time encouraging our students to get up on that ledge because many of them are professionally engaged and the opportunity cost of starting something is pretty high so we're like just test it out take that step get up on the ledge and see what the the view is like then we spend the other half talking them off the ledge and they're like oh my god this is crazy i can't manage this but Take that step. Like it, life is too short to constantly be pushing that dream of of wanting to do something, even if it's a side gig, even if it's taking a part time job working for somebody else to get to know the market better. Just take the step. Yeah, and so mine is going to be more focused on resilience, and I, I want to say don't give up, but at the same time I don't want to say don't give up because there are some people who are just like, yeah, you should have given up. <laughs> But to know that whether it's entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship, we are inside a university and we are doing entrepreneurship and it's hard. People don't really like new things and continuing to work at something to try and make it as successful as possible. Uh, people have to dig deep and find some resilience. And one of the things I've been really impressed with over the last couple of years is when the organizations that bring founders or presidents together because they have unique problems and they need a group of people to share them with. Mm. And, and that's where you find your resilience. That's where you find your ability to stay focused when something is really hard because it's going to be really hard. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for your time, guys. This was fantastic to have both of you on with us today and a lot of great nuggets. And certainly if people want to learn more or get the book, where should they go? You can pick it up anywhere books are sold at Amazon. It's a popular press, Amazon, Google, Barnes and Noble. And we have a website, the titanicdefect.com. You can pick it up there too. Awesome. For the audio book. So if you don't like our voices, you definitely don't want the audio. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys Thanks both speak on. in the audio book together? We each read a different chapter. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Love it. Great. Thanks for your time, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Right. Thanks. Talk to you later. Look forward to reading your book, John. Thank you. Please stick around for a few more minutes while Rich and I break down this episode. John, one of the things that is a good reminder, I think, to entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs is even when you own the business, you don't call all the shots. And you're kidding yourself if you think you do. 
And it's a fantasy of someone who is not an entrepreneur to believe, yeah, you could get in and you just do absolutely everything, call shots. Now, there are entrepreneurs who do that, and some of them are, can be a bull in a china shop a bit and just run over people because it's their business. They could do everything their way and not be responsive to the market or not be responsive to investors or not be responsive to their team. Yeah, I think if you go on what Todd said, I fully subscribe to. If you don't want to be part of a team and all you want to do is control your own shots, then be a day trader on the stock market. You don't need a team to be around that. It's almost like being an athlete, but you don't want to be a part of a team. Go be a tennis player or a golf player. You don't have to be part of a team. You just do your own game like or whatever, right? Whatever analogy you want to give to it. But if you choose to be an entrepreneur, you're choosing to work with and for people at the end of the day, right? And if you think about the concept of servant leadership, you work for your team. You're trying to help them achieve their goals. But uh, if you don't have that vision as an entrepreneur, you might be in the wrong business if you don't really want to work with or for others. So now I do think there's some limitations there, Rich, where you do want to build a culture that you aspire to build and not have other people tell you what kind of culture you want to build if you're an entrepreneur, things like that. So you have to be really careful in growing your enterprise, who you bring on board, who you bring on board to be partners in your business, if you bring any at all, who you bring on board to be investors in your business, how much bank debt you take on, and maybe the bank's going to take over your business if you go too far over your skis on the leverage side of things, who you hire for employees. You literally can lose the control of your culture of your business by the employees you hire. There's a lot of you know dangerous pitfalls when you think about that, but being crystal clear on what you're trying to create and the culture you're trying to create, and then make sure you take the steps and you don't run into any icebergs that can take that off uh, you know, your course. Among other things, one of the things you just mentioned was partners in the business. And I loved your question towards the end of what makes their partnership work. I had two notes I wanted to just reflect back to you. One of them is the very first thing that was said was we laugh a lot. Mm. So they just enjoy each other. They don't take each other themselves or life too seriously. They are there to enjoy life with each other. The other one was that I liked what Kim said was, we don't mind turning around. She didn't expand on that, but she said, <laughs> we don't mind turning around. I think that's really interesting. It, it's the old analogy of what's what you typically hear of as the husband driving the car and the wife in the uh, front seat. And the wife is asking, are we, do you know where you're going? Yes, I know where I'm going. And <laughs> missing turn after turn. Why don't we just pull off and ask somebody? No, I got it. And there's so many of us literally in the analogy of driving. And then when you look at just people making positional statements mm. and not believing that there's any other way that things can be done, it's only what I believe that they're very willing. They don't mind turning around. And I can only imagine that she said that not just about driving, but she that's an analogous for life for them, I have a feeling. If something's not working, it's not working. Let's just put that on the table. Let's just turn around. Let's do something differently. Yeah, very deep, Rich. That, that's a great pickup. And I think you're right. I don't think that was just attributable to driving. I think there's a sense of uh, patient ambition that they bring to not only entrepreneurs they work with, but also themselves. What's the rush to get over there? We can turn around and go this way. That's We want to live life to its fullest, right? There's something about that that, that you're right. I, I don't think it applies just to driving and, and great on you to catch that. The other piece that we had talked about that I thought about as it was being said was this whole idea of venture 
advocate behaviors or venture advocate opportunities? And do you know how to seek those out as an entrepreneur? And what that reminded me of was a prior conversation we had way back when we talked about if you seek to find investors, you'll get advice. Seek advice and maybe someday you'll find some investors that want to back you because they, they believe in who you are. It's a little bit of that venture advocate. What are you doing as an entrepreneur to seek out uh, others that maybe can help you with your business? Not financially, but they have wisdom. They would love mentoring uh, entrepreneurs. They love to share experiences that they've had to help you in your business and build those relationships. So when you do get yourself in a tough spot, who are you going to call and ask for help? Have you built up those opportunities? But then that can also lead to when your business is ready to explode, who are you going to call to see who can help put you in the right direction and, and connect you with people? And that whole power, I think a lot of entrepreneurs put their head in the sand and just start building their business and wake up one day and there's a problem and they don't know who to call. Or they wake up one day and they want to grow their business even more, but they don't know how to get investor capital. They haven't even, they haven't even started building those relationships. So I really love that concept of venture advocate behaviors. Yeah, and you can only imagine the advocacy that happens behind the scenes with the two of them, with Todd and Kim. As Kim described it in terms of their roles, what I was picturing, and I think she used the word visionary when she was talking about Todd, and she didn't use the word integrator when she talked about herself, but those are the two roles from the book Rocket Fuel. That Rocket Fuel is when you take a visionary and an integrator, somebody who's like big picture thinker, pressing the limits of the vision and the boundaries. Then you have the integrator who's just the dog on the bone and won't let it go and is going to follow through on things. And what I found fascinating was at the very end when you had asked them, hey, what's one thing you want to offer entrepreneurs? What did Todd say? Todd said, basically, just take the first step. You'll figure it out. What a very visionary thing to say, right? And then what did Kim say? Kim said, be resilient. Don't give up. What an integrator thing to say. It was just, I found it, it just tickled me that she identified them in those roles. And then the very thing that they went to that they would offer to entrepreneurs was within those roles, what someone playing that role would say. Just let's get started. Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. And then the integrator saying, stick with it. Don't quit. I love that. Certainly, it's a certainly one of those books, The Titanic Effect. And I was asking um, offline, I asked him, hey, is there a checklist of like right. 32 icebergs? I want to know if I'm missing any in my business. I think picking up this book is a really good guide. And there is a checklist at the back of the book. You actually go through and just see which icebergs you might be heading towards. Because quite honestly, Rich, the entrepreneurs failing in their business because they hit one of these icebergs is really painful really painful. And the fact that there's 32 icebergs you should be conscious of, that you should probably pick up the book and take a look. <laughs>